Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this episode, we're talking about a dramatic moment of recent history, about the effort to save Silver Falls State Park from the Labor Day fires. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, in this edition, we are traveling back to one of the scariest time periods in Oregon's modern history, the Labor Day fires. We've obviously done a lot about the fires, including detailing the many beloved places that were severely burned. But last week, we published a more positive story about a dramatic fight to stop flames from torching Silver Falls State Park, one of Oregon's oldest, most popular, and most beautiful places. To help us tell this story, we're joined today by Chris Gillian, the supervisor of park rangers at Silver Falls, who oversaw the evacuation of the park in the early morning, hours of September 8th. Chris, thanks for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're also joined by Colin Martz, a student at Willamette University who co-wrote and reported much of the story for the Statesman Journal. Kyle, thanks for taking your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. All right, so I'm going to set the scene just a little bit here before we get going. So heading into Labor Day weekend, we had two wildfires burning east of Salem. We had the Lion's Head Fire in the Mount Jefferson Wilderness and the Beachy Creek Fire in the Opal Creek Wilderness. Then we had a forecast for a historic windstorm with, you know, 75 mile per hour dry winds. There was a lot of concern that weekend, but it wasn't at all clear what was actually going to happen. We knew the active fires would likely grow, but we didn't know how large. And even late that night, it wasn't really obvious what was happening. So, Chris, you're at Silver Falls. You had a campground full of people that weekend. Was it business as usual, or how close were you tracking the storm both over the weekend and then into that Labor Day afternoon and evening? The weekend itself was actually a little bit more calm than we had been seeing all summer. I think towards September, um, people had kind of gotten their outdoor fix at that point. And so our day use area, which is usually our business, busiest part of the park, was just kind of like a normal weekend. Our campground was, of course, full for the holiday um, but that's that's normal every day during the summer, so it wasn't anything abnormal. Um, but otherwise, it was kind of just a normal weekend. Uh, we've been, you know, of course, the staff has been lower all year because of the COVID issues. But otherwise, we were just doing operations as usual, and we weren't really expecting to see anything out of the out of the out of the norm. So Labor Day afternoon and night, the winds picked up, smoke started filtering in, the two fires on the landscape exploded and started moving very quickly. To make matters worse, down power lines created new wildfires and it all morphed into a firestorm that roared down the Sanium Canyon and then turned northwest. But everything happened incredibly quickly. I, I know you got a call early that morning, but what do you remember about that night? I drove the park at uh, 1.30 in the morning because we I live in the park uh, as the one of the managers here and um, it's my responsibility to be on call 24 hours a day. And I we had lost power around 7 p.m the night before on the 7th. And so I was kind of on edge the whole time. And so I decided to drive the park at around 1.30 in the morning just to get eyes on the park to see what was happening, to see if there was power anywhere else. And there's just a lot of debris down. The The wind was just whipping. And 
I was getting text at that point from my district manager, Sarah Steele, about uh, Detroit State Park, and they're in the midst of evacuating. And I just was saying, if you need some help, I'll come down there. And she actually just told me, you know, stay put because you might be needed there. And I was that was the first time I thought, well, okay, wait a minute. So this might actually be coming towards Silver Falls. And um, at about 2.30, I went back to bed. And then, like you said, around 5 in the morning, I got a call from Oregon State Police Dispatch saying evacuate the park right now. Now, you said you had a little bit of context for it, but that still must have come as a shock because those original fires were a long way away. Did you have any real clue when you went to bed that night that you might have fire coming right at you in a few hours? Even when she said stay put, I thought it was more of just stay put. (laughs) Don't (laughs) get yourself in any trouble. And I had no idea. I didn't think it would happen at all. Um, It was, we get windstorms all the time. We get trees that come down all the time. We lose power constantly. And so it was kind of a normal, unfortunately, a normal weekend, a normal night here at the park. And so I I had no inkling at all that at five o'clock, it would go from a zero evac level to a three within, you know, minutes. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Now, you said you were booked solid at Silver Falls at the campground. Can you talk about what it was going to mean to evacuate Oregon's largest state park in such a hurry? Um, how do you even go about making that happen? What's what's the process and what are the challenges there? So, like I said, I live in the park. So the first step I took was to, to get my wife and dogs out of the house and, <laughs> and leave the park. So that's that was a stressor just to begin with, um, is making sure that she was safe, she was out of the house, at that point, I, I knew I needed help. There's no way I was going to evacuate hundreds of people by myself in a timely fashion. Um, and the only information I had was evac now and then no time frame. So I, I immediately called my upland supervisors. Um, and then I called our most senior park ranger who lives in Silverton and asked for his assistance, Jason Wagner. He's our park ranger three in the park. Uh, and so he um, answered the call luckily and said, I'll be right there. At that point, I left the house and just started um, systematically thinking of who do I need to contact first in the park to get them moving, and then just sort of started with the game plan. So we have a we have a little loop here of our host volunteers that live on site, and they do a lot of our, our maintenance and landscaping. So I went to their loop first because they are real close to me um, and got them uh, sort of moving. At that point, you know, of course, they're asking, like, what, what do we – need to take how long do we have and i pretty much just said just leave now with your your vehicles and leave your recreational homes there um and so they evacuated and then i moved into our campground and started going door to door at every sort of campsite and rv that we had in the in the campground side so so at that point i mean was it smoky already um like what was the sky kind of dark what was the sort of situation at that point it was definitely smoky and it was the first time since COVID that I was happy to have a face mask on because it was ash was falling um, already in the park. It was dark because it was still like 530 in the morning, but it was real dark. It was pitch black, um, still windy. You, could, you couldn't you could smell the fire yet, um, but you could definitely um, sense or feel the ash coming down getting in your eyes. But what was the response from campers? It, it sounds like you're just going from campsite to campsite telling people, hey, got to go. So how did those interactions go? Because it's, you know, it's still very early in the morning. I'm sure most people hadn't even woken up. I'm sure some people probably thought this was crazy because, again, there was little warning that anything like this was going to happen. 
And now you're coming at them with, hey, wildfire is coming. You have to pack your stuff and get out of here. I mean, that's a lot to take in. So how did those interactions go? It's It was pretty interesting. It was the, all three phases, you know, flight, <laughs> fight or flee. And depending on what door you knocked on, it was, it was the reaction you got. And some people would, you know, just say, well, how long do I have? And I said, at that point, I kind of made the judgment. You got until the state troopers get here. Um, with their sirens that's how long you have and so i never gave a time but i i changed my sort of approach from when i was in the host telling them like leave now to you have until sirens are here and they're forcing you to leave and so some people would um want to have a discussion about it and i just said hey i gotta move on like here's the story you have until the troopers get here uh start start moving um and then other people would hear me knocking on the 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 campsite across the the road and they would say what's going on i said we need to evacuate and they're just getting their cars to go <laughs> and so <laughs> there was no question at all so i you had a, definitely a mix um overall people i think sort of sensed you know they didn't have power either um since the night before so they could sense and if they were following the news they were knowing what was going on um in the canyon and so for the most part there might have been a handful of people that just sort of want to ask more questions which is understandable but for the most part, people start packing up and, and getting out of there. But one thing to think about is that it wasn't just people in tents and RVs and stuff like that. Silver Falls has a lot of horse campers as well. And that doesn't sound easy, you know, loading up a horse trailer in pitch black darkness and a lot of panic around. So how did that how did that play out? Yeah, luckily, by the time I got through one of our loops, um, the start the state troopers started showing up and with their bullhorns coming through the their vehicles that really helped wake up a lot of the the tent campers at that point i left the campground because i had knocked on every rv and i went to the our horse camps um which are about uh, about a mile away um into the park and uh, woke each one of them up um that was a lot more complicated because they um you know, they're, they're, they're not leaving with their horse, without their horses. That's that's not going to happen. So you can tell them, you know, you have, to, you have until the troopers get here, but that doesn't matter with them, which which I which I like about them. Um, unfortunately, one of the groups had no diesel fuel at all, so they couldn't leave. Um, they couldn't leave the park. And so I ran back to our shop yard and grabbed a couple cans of five gallon diesel and and filled them up. They were so this this is jumping ahead of about an hour, but. That they were literally the last group, the last group of people to leave, um, just logistic-wise with the fuel. We also have a horse concessionaire on site that had um, 10 to 20 horses that they had to load up. Uh, they they load up as many as they can, and then the rest they put in the, the paddock and turn the sprinklers on and hope for the best. Um, luckily, they were able to come back a few hours later and get the rest of them, but um, it's pretty scary to think that they were just going to leave their horses in the paddock and hope for the best. Um, but it worked out luckily. Our roads getting it out of the, the campground. I mean, when you throw hundreds of people onto a pretty small highway all at once with panic and this pitch black darkness, that sounds problematic. So did traffic get out of there okay? Uh, how long did it take for, for that to, to, to go out? That is the biggest uh, illustration, I think, of how much, how fast the fire was moving because when the troopers got to the campsite and I checked in with them, they said, everyone has to go towards Silverton because the fire is raging down 22. By the time an hour went by, it had switched to the other direction. And so they said, do not go towards Silverton, go towards 22. Um, 
towards sublimity. And so within an hour, and then I kind of was like, well, I just gave hundreds of people the wrong information. (laughs) Um, But that's how fast the fire fingers were going. You had the the finger on the south of the park and then the finger on the north of the park. And so uh, the firefighting crews were doing the best they could with the information they had. But I think the fire was just moving so fast at that point that the information was changing instantly. Did you have a good feel for how far away the fire was at this point? Like, did you get any information from the troopers as to to where it was at, at any given time? I knew it was close when every trooper was gone before I was. And they said, well, we're leaving. And all the firefighters that had come up from the local communities to help evacuate, they were leaving. And so it was myself, like I said, the park ranger, um, Jason Wagoner, that came to help. And also uh, another um, park manager that that, uh, works at Willamette Mission, Kevin Strandberg. He lives in Silverton. He came and helped. And we were the last three people there. At that point, you knew it was serious because all fire and emergency personnel were gone. (laughs) They were like, we're (laughs) out of here. (laughs) And I think for the most part, they might have had other tasks to do, like go door to door at other houses to evacuate those folks. But it didn't feel uh, it didn't put me at ease to know that they were gone and we were the last ones around. So that morning, and I think you saw this in the story, but one of the directors of the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department said, you know, he really thought Silver Falls might go up in flame. So how did you feel driving away? Was there any sense of, man, you know, whenever I get back, this park might look a lot different? Yeah, the the three of us met back up, Kevin, Jason, and I met back up in the shop yard to just give a a, a debrief and make sure we hit every area and um, followed uh all of the protocols that we could remember at the time. And right then I could hear trees starting to crack and fall behind our shop yard area. And at that point I said, let's get out of here. We're, we're gone. And that I didn't think the park would ever be the same at that moment when I, when we got in our trucks and left, um, heading down towards sublimity. And then, you know, we crossed back over on the cascade highway to get to Silverton because that's where my wife was. Um, it just looked like the fire had engulfed the entire park from that road. Um, you couldn't tell the difference at that point. And, you know, we, we left the park at, I wrote it down because it was 747. So I got the call at 515 at 747 is when we left. And it was still pitch blackout from the fire and the smoke. Um, and it just, in our in my gut, I just had a feeling that it was never going to be the same and we might not have the park anymore. Now, Silver Falls was far from the only park that needed to be evacuated that night. Detroit Lake State Park was obviously evacuated. Uh, North Sanium State Park, Fisherman's Bend Campgrounds. I mean, in those cases, campers literally woke up surrounded by flames and were essentially evacuating as the, the fire was all around them. It was a really harrowing night. So have you talked to any of your colleagues about that evening or, or exchanged stories? Yeah, definitely. Um, several of the rangers and and the park manager of Detroit, uh, Bob Ray, they were literally on the front lines getting folks out of out of the fire. Um, uh, you see the photos also of some of the park hosts have shared of them actually driving down the highway with flames on each side of the highway. And I can't even imagine being in, put in that position and uh, feeling like literally death is coming for you because you're driving out of fire. Um, luckily, you know, the minimal true damage to structures and 
and and life is as minimal as it was because it, it sure didn't feel that way in the morning of yeah. uh, of the eighth. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've talked to emergency managers, and for what you guys faced, I mean, going from a zero, which means you know no warning, to a level three, which means get out now, that almost never happens. You know, that's 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 a pretty crazy experience, and for it to go fairly smoothly to get people out of there and you know, three hours or less, it's kind of a miracle. Do you ever look back on that night and think, man, you know, that was awful, but it could have been a lot worse. Definitely. You know, talking with um, Kyle to do this piece back in November, it brings up, it brings up all the memories that you forgot about. Um, looking back at text, the check text chain between all of the Oregon State Parks personnel that morning um, and how fluid and the situation and the communication was it just it just makes you, you at the moment you can luckily now with texts and emails and all that you sort of have a timestamp of what was actually happening um emotionally and and operationally and so you can always go back and kind of see where you were at mentally and, it kind of, and you can go back there and definitely i'm just amazed that the the park here itself stand and then also the damage that was done with our local communities um was was as minimal as it was i i can't be any more grateful for all of the efforts with the firefighters um the Oregon state park staff etc all right we're going to take a quick break now to hear from our sponsor when we come back we'll hear how a group of local firefighters banded together to protect both silver falls and the town of drake's crossing from the incoming beachy creek fire The following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know the Northwest Forest Sector applies cutting edge technology to utilize every wood fiber possible? Residual material from saw logs, such as bark, wood chips, and sawdust, are often converted to pulp to make paper products. Today's sawmills also use these residuals to create renewable power for their own facilities and even sell energy to local utilities to power thousands of homes in their communities. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforests.org. Okay, welcome back. So once everybody's been evacuated, we moved into kind of the firefighting part of the story. And just to put things in context, we never had a time period like this in Oregon's modern history. Over those few days, wildfires popped up all over the state. Not just in the St. Anne Canyon, but in the Clackamas and North Umpqua Canyons, out near Lincoln City and down to southern Oregon. Almost one million acres of forest burned, 4,000 homes were destroyed, and 11 people were killed in a very short window of time. All of which is to say, firefighters were stretched to the breaking point. Now, Kyle, you reported on the firefighting efforts outside Silver Falls. So who were the main people involved? Who, who answered the bell in this particular area? Yeah, so I want to start by acknowledging that for the first week of the fight, the only crews on the front lines were made up of volunteers from the local community. Uh, they were led by the Drake's Crossing Fire Department and Fire Chief Fred Patterson, who are contracted for fire suppression in Silver Falls State Park. For additional support, because they needed it, Patterson made a handful of last-minute calls to local volunteer contractors, uh, which include Shavaria Construction in Silverton, Drake's Crossing Nursery, 
and K&E Excavation in Salem. All three provided the heavy equipment to uh, punch dozer lines into the Silver Falls backcountry with the goal of slowing the spread of the Beachy Creek Fire. And later, um, after about a week, they were joined by contracted crews from the U.S. Forest Service. But for the first week, again, the only people on the front lines of the fire were local volunteers. Yeah, so Drake's Crossing Fire Department, I mean, you know, as we've we've covered this event, we talked to, you know, in a lot of cases, the people on the front lines were these local rural fire departments. So Drake's Crossing, you know, kind of fits in there. So who who are they? Like, who is this group that's involved? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Chief Fred Patterson? Yeah, Drake's Crossing Fire Department is a crew of about 22 volunteer firefighters in the small community of Drake's Crossing, which is a small population of about 800 residents just east of Silverton. Uh, the department's chief, Fred Patterson, is a fourth-generation firefighter in the Drake's Crossing community. His grandfather, Bill Bartels, uh, was the original founder of the department in 1967. Um, he has some stories about going on fire calls with his grandpa. Firefighting is literally in this guy's blood, um, and he comes from a long bloodline of firefighters. Okay, so he's got, you know, this unprecedented situation. There's, you know, a fire seemingly roaring towards the park. So as, as he takes in the situation, uh, what, what are his goals? And, and what's he going to try to do to try to slow down or, or stop the fire? So their goal was to both protect structures in the nearby communities like Drake's Crossing and Silverton um, and to save the incredible recreational area that Silver Falls State Park provides. Um, as Patterson said, no one wanted to see the park blackened. Um, and to slow the fire's approach, crews used fire lines, referred to as dozer lines in the article, uh, which are dug deep into the ground with the goal of removing as much burnable vegetation as possible from a specific area. And usually they're dug by hand or punched into the earth by bulldozers, uh, depending on terrain, specific fire behavior, and the resources that the fire crews have on hand. Uh, dozer lines can be anywhere from wood blade length uh, to multiple blade lengths wide. For example, the line that Chris and I bushwhacked out to uh, near the east perimeter of the park uh, was about three blade lengths wide, up to about two stories deep in some areas and dug into a 35 degree fall line um, or slope. Uh, it was truly an incredible feat of human ingenuity and uh, uh, Chris can attest to this. Uh, the terrain in the Silver Falls backcountry is filled with a rugged system of ridgelines and creek beds. And this terrain forced contractors to send bulldozers down extremely steep slopes. Like, imagine skiing a black diamond ski run with a bulldozer. <laughs> uh, this is extremely dangerous work that these guys are doing. Um, it was done by incredible people who were volunteering their time to save their local communities and the park. Gotcha. And, you know, they're not just trying to stop the fire from burning into, into Silver Falls. They're also trying to stop the fire from burning into their own homes and own communities in, in Drake's Crossing, correct? Correct. In addition to saving the park, they're also working tirelessly to save structures in their own communities. Um, Fred Patterson and Matt Chavaria from Chavaria Construction, they both told me that fighting fires in their own backyards was the hardest part of the two weeks they were on the fire. Uh, most of their crew members lived in the area and had been working on their this timber line their entire lives. Um, they were constantly responding to calls and texts from neighbors, asking them to do their best to save their own houses. Um, under these circumstances, it made the stakes even higher for these crew members. 
Okay, so they're, you know, they're punching in these dozer lines to try and, you know, stop the fire from, you know, going across them and getting into the park and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of smoke in the air. I mean, in those days, we had hazardous air quality. It was hot. Like, what was the sense of the, the scene that they were, were dealing with out there? Yeah, and in addition to the heat and unhealthy air quality, crews were also faced with a historic east wind event. Um, where, as you mentioned, winds were hitting up to 75 miles per hour. And when you combine that with nearly 30 days without rain, um, it was truly the, the perfect storm. Um, once the winds did subside on the uh, morning of September 9th, uh, visibility became the next challenge. Uh, that unhealthy air quality and low visibility made it almost impossible to map the fire's progression into the park. Um, so they sent crews patrolling all night. They, as in um, the Drake's Crossing Fire Department, had crews essentially patrolling the park all night. Um, and in addition, uh, they were battling this fire in a remote and rugged uh, series of ridgelines. Um, and the combination of low visibility, steep topography, and overworked crews made their success even more incredible. Okay, so it sounded like at, at some point they kind of picked places to make their stand. Like they looked at that topography and said, okay, here's where we want to really dig in. Here's where we don't want the fire to cross. So where do they decide to, to make that stand uh, to stop the fire from reaching both Drake's Crossing and, and then Silver Falls itself? Yeah, so they made two stands. Um, to the south in Silver Falls, crews made a stand in the southeast portion of the park near the Catamount Trail. They ran a fire line that paralleled the east boundary of the park um, and counted on this line to hold. And Patterson made it clear that if that line did not hold, that dozer line did not hold the fire back, uh, they were going to call in backup resources um, and do literally anything they possibly could to save the park. Um, to the north near Drake's Crossing in Silverton, uh, crews made their final stand um, near the Bridge Creek drainage along the grade road, uh, roughly about half a mile from the communities of Great Crossing. Uh, they knew if the fire crossed Grade Road, they were going to start losing homes. So they made that stand right on the Grade Road. Okay. So for, first, Kyle, and then and Chris, if you can chime in here with uh, you know anything we haven't touched on. But the, the fire ultimately did burn into the park boundary of Silver Falls, but it only you know burned about 125 acres, you know, and kind of out in the back country. Uh, the fire also stopped about a half mile from Drake's Crossing. Those those stands that the firefighters made held up. So, what were the factors in stopping the fire from having a bigger impact? So, what what were the combination of things that allowed them to be successful? So, there are two main factors: um, one, knowledgeable firefighters, and two, a sudden break in east winds. Um, so, the experienced fire crews actually used this rugged terrain to their advantage. For example. At the Bridge Creek drainage, they ran a dozer line across the break of the ridgeline, or just as the slope broke downwards towards the creek bed. Patterson and his crews knew that fire activity moves much faster uphill than downhill as it preheats the vegetation above before it climbs up that slope. Um, so crews used the terrain to their advantage um, by preventing the fire from jumping across the creek bed and then building energy as it climbed back out of the drainage towards the homes on that other ridgeline. So, so just to clarify, you know, they're trying to catch the fire as it's coming down the downslope and to, to stop it in the drainage right there? 
Yes, stop it before you've even met on the downslope before it hit the creek bed. And to the south, um, at the east perimeter of the park, crews use natural fire breaks, such as a large private clear cut to the east, um, old service roads, uh, and the Catamount Trail itself uh, to slow the fire's progression. But in the end, um, and Patterson really stressed this, the reason Silver Falls State Park and Drake's Crossing are standing right now is because that wind suddenly stopped. Uh, Fred, Fred said himself that if that wind would have continued to blow like that for another hour, he firmly believes we would have lost the entire state park and his community of Drake's Crossing. Gotcha. Um, Chris, so what have you seen as, uh, you know, you've looked at those fire lines put in there, talked to some of the firefighters. Um, have you observed anything that really sticks out about that, that firefighting effort? Yeah, I mean, we are fortunate that the, the south perimeter of the park <clears throat> follows a Lookout Mountain Road. And so that did sort of serve as a, a jumping off point to do the dozer lines. And um, it's it's pretty it's pretty different now when you drive that road and try to get to that southeast corner of the park. You immediately cross through, you know, completely burned patches. And you, you can see the difference in the ferocity of the, the fire because at some point it just looks like it's smoldered and there's green mixed with black. And then you go through a patch that's completely green and then you get to the end and, and every tree... Uh, is barren because um, it, it was burning so hot at that point. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can literally see the point where the wind stopped and they died down and they didn't have enough fuel to keep going. You know, Silver Falls is interesting because it is, if you look at it on a map, it's an island of forest. And so there's a lot of fuel in there. And if it would have actually kept going, it would have, who knows what would have happened, but um yeah, you know, in looking at some of the pictures that Kyle took out there and then in talking to some of the firefighters and, and, and other folks out there, you know, they were really strong. I mean, you can see the fire, you know, burning up to some of those lines and then on the other side, it's green. So those those lines really seem to play a big role in at least stopping the fire from advancing in, in a few different areas. Is that is that kind of what you've taken away, Chris? Yeah, definitely. The, the road, for one, um, helped on the south side and then um the perimeter trail in parts and then i think as kyle said you know there's the different fuel types that led up to the park boundaries is contributing factor i do agree though that if the wind would have kept going it would have mattered it would have just it would have decimated the park yeah well i mean we we certainly saw that all throughout the sanium canyon i mean there was we wrote stories about you know hundreds of fuel breaks that were put in uh you know in the sanium canyon up in willamette national forest and at that point, you have hurricane force winds blasting active fire. And I mean, there's literally nothing that's going to stop the fire at that point. Um, so sounds like it was a, a combination of these guys putting in the hard work of, you know, getting these, these these breaks in there and then the weather. And those two things taken together is is why Silver Falls. I mean, you go there now and, uh, you know, you must be seeing this with people that visit. They probably don't even know how close this area came to calamity. I mean, do you ever do you have have that? had that talk with the the public that's visited yeah definitely right afterwards everyone would ask like well i thought this place was was burnt <laughs> and like <laughs> well it, it did it i mean it did a couple, uh, a couple hundred acres it's just in a remote area of the park you know 99 percent of our visitors go see the waterfalls and you know that from a the crow flies that's two miles away from where we the fire burnt um we completely reopened the south falls and the waterfall area on september 23rd and so with two weeks of cleanup, no one would even know, um, majority of people wouldn't know that 
that there was a fire in the park. And that's a good thing. But, you know, we still have portions of the, the Catamount Trail and that southeast corner that are that are closed to the public because it's it's too dangerous. There's too much standing dead. Um, so it's going to be um, months and months until we can actually open the entire park. But for the, you know, like I said, 99% of the people were open and operating and they have, they would have no idea. Yeah. Let me drill down into that point just a little bit. So you said as far as where you can, you know, see black and forest and then like South falls, like, so how far did the fire, fi- did the fire actually come to those places? People know so well, like South falls or the, the Canyon trail. The Southeast corner to, you know, South falls, which is our big signature signature falls is, was probably about two miles. If you're wow. looking at that that south finger of the arm that burnt um, Shellburg Falls, it's it's probably even closer um, because there are sections um, of Shellburg that it butt up right against our, the property of the state, and it's probably you know mile to mile and a half to where the waterfall is. And so. Yeah, I was going to ask about Shelburg Falls um, because so once things settled down and you started to to look around at the state of places that weren't Silver Falls. I mean, so Shelburg Falls is just down the road. Uh, Opal Creek is just up the road. Sandium Canyon in general. I mean, did you get a sense of like, wow, this really came close to changing Silver, uh, Silver Falls forever? I mean, how did you feel once those images of aftermath of places really close started coming out? Yeah, a couple, you know, stages of grief, I guess, and you sort of accept it and you're, you're grateful and you you question why um, you get a little survivor's guilt and like, why did why did this park um, survive and others didn't and other homes? Um, you know, if you drive down the canyon, you see those those um, fireplaces just standing in the everywhere and you kind of just go, wow, how did how did, you know, that house live and stand and the other one didn't? And you kind of just, like I said, get survivor's guilt and then. As you move away from that, at least from a, a park operator stance, it's you're you're grateful that you you are probably now going to be one of the places that people take refuge in in mm-hmm. the coming years because that all of those other recreational opportunities are going to be gone for a really long time, and we are grateful that we do have more than nine thousand acres for people to come to, and hopefully we get those backcountry trails completely open and people can experience true, you know, Northwest Forest Oregon Forest hiking that you have even mm-hmm. though you might not have south falls there there's still amazing hiking and there's you know 35 plus miles of it and so we're kind of positioned to to sort of welcome everyone who's going to be forced to not recreate in their normal areas you make an interesting point there so you know like you said earlier 99 percent of the visitors to silver falls probably don't even know the backcountry exists there and with places like Shelburg Falls, Opal Creek just being kind of decimated for decades. Do you see the backcountry kind of playing a bigger role in sort of what visitors come to you for? Yeah, we do. We do, definitely. Um, it's such a resource that is is unknown. Um, SEDA, the Salem Area Trail Alliance, who's a big mountain biking advocacy group and nonprofit and full of volunteers that do a lot of work. They're also in the, the article that um, Kyle and Zach wrote. They are they are really doing a lot of work with um, opening back up the mountain bike trails. They're developing a couple other areas that sort of need to be rerouted and make a more enjoyable ride. But also like Oregon Equestrian Trails, they're looking to do more work in the park to get the equestrians out. Um, they are very popular with Howard Creek and the horse camps there. And overall, people don't always want to be around thousands of people when they're on a hike. <laughs> and so it's a great opportunity for us just to say, if you know, if you go across the highway 
you're going to be alone on a Saturday morning in the middle of summer for a couple hours if you want to be. And so we are definitely going to try to position it and develop. We're constantly trying to, to um, reroute some of our trails because a lot of them are old road beds. They're not the most enjoyable hiking experience at this point, but we're always on a mission to make them the sort of, um, you know, 35 mile trail structures that anyone can hike on and have an enjoyable experience. So, so given the backcountry is going to play a bigger role in the future, what is the, the cleanup effort in the area that was burned uh, looked like? Um, has it been the Salem area trail lines coming in and, and clearing them? Or, I mean, what are the things that are actively happening both, you know, after the fire and then, and then right now to get those, to get those ready? Like what, what are the things that they're doing on the ground? So they we're not letting them do a whole lot right now in the fire area, especially the, the parts that burned really, really hot. There's just, it's just too much standing dead and it's a little bit too dangerous for volunteers to be doing that work. So we've done a lot um, with, with staff time. We have a, a forester and a couple other folks that are helping to sort of evaluate the damage and um, assess what is actually going to be needed. There's a lot of hard work um, and time consuming work that's going to have to take place, but um we're, we are in a pretty good position overall. Like I said, it's only 200 acres and maybe uh, a mile of trail that we have to, to open up, but there's a lot of standing dead that we have to take care of first. Gotcha. And it, it sounds like, um, you know, according to, to Kyle's reporting, you guys are also working on a more detailed plan or expanding your plan for wildfires at Silver Falls because, you know, a few years ago, you guys had a, a very small fire there, but, you know, it was a fire there. Now we've had this. And it certainly appears like wildfires are going to be more part of the landscape in, in the future. Yeah. our So right after that fire in 2018, it was small. Like you said, it was 27 acres in the remote area of the park. We we did start developing a, a fire, um, not really a response plan, but a, a fire preparation plan or a forest management plan. And it did account for a lot of our those old roads that count as trails right now is keeping those um cleared and having a, a true buffer corridor of no vegetation. Um, so we've been following that for a couple of years now. Of course, we always like to use any opportunity we can, even a harsh opportunity like a, like the fire we just had to get more resources. You know, we um, are trading in. We have, a, we have a pretty good tractor, but it's not good enough to clear those backcountry trails. And so we are going to exchange that very soon with the, the bigger one. It's going to allow us to do a little bit more work, a little bit more efficiently. And so we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how, because the 35 miles of trails with the limited staff is going to be tough and we can't always count on volunteers to do it also. Getting more machinery, um, using our partners with volunteers, um, ODF, et cetera, is going to be the only way that we can actually accomplish some of these goals of keeping a, a, the fire risk down as much as possible. Gotcha. Well, we can, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, so Kyle or Chris, um, anything else you'd want people to know about whether the evacuation or the, the firefighting efforts at Silver Falls or the aftermath that, that we didn't get to? Any Anything that, that sticks out? Um, thank your local fire departments and trail crews. Um, if you follow the article to the bottom, uh, there are some links to donate to Drake's Crossing Fire Department and the Salem Area Trail Alliance. Uh, remember, these organizations are 100% volunteer-based and depend on community support. So, yeah, thank a firefighter. Gotcha. Anything uh, that jumps out at you, Chris? You know, we, every year um, we do a, a sort of a tabletop exercise with Drake's Crossing, and we try to have a different theme every year because they they're also they're, they're here every weekend, usually with a, with a 911 call, a you know, rolled ankle or something. So 
they do know this park like the back of their hand. Um, but those yearly tabletop exercises where we go to the Catamount Trail, which is new, fairly new, so they can get to know it, has I think has really helped um, solidify the the true ownership as as a as a public body of like this is our park, this is our land, we're here to protect it. And so having people that come out like SEDA, other volunteers like OET, uh, Trailkeepers of Oregon. It just gives more people ownership because it is public property. It is their land. And uh, I think it gives people a bigger sense of urgency to, to save it when there is a crisis like this. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Kyle and Chris, and talking about this really remarkable episode in, uh, you know, Oregon's modern history. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for having us. All right. That's about all the time we have for today on the Explore Oregon podcast. We hope you like what you heard. If you want to check out previous episodes, go ahead and hit up statesonjournal.com slash explore. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other great podcast purveyors. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org.